Jeremiah chapter 17, our text tonight will be the first uh, 13 verses. And uh, this chapter actually contains one of the most uh, well-known verses in the Old Testament. Uh, I think it would be in the top 10, maybe it even takes out a medal position, and that's verse 9. And uh, although Jeremiah probably didn't realize its full uh, theological depth and significance as he penned it, uh, this is a key verse in uh, developing our anthropology, which is the theology of man. Uh, so this helps us to understand ourselves and to understand others. It's a key building block in our theological house, and it has all kinds of practical applications and implications. So verse 9 will be uh, our primary focus tonight. Uh, but as is the case uh, with all scripture, it's imperative that we set it in its contextual framework. Okay, this will help us interpret correctly. Uh, so let's read Jeremiah chapter 17. We'll read from verse 1 down to 13. Now the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It's graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. And thou even thyself shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee and I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. If ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, it shall burn forever." Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. Now blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. And the partridge sitteth on eggs, and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches, and not by right, shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at his end shall be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be ridden in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, please help us. Uh, to understand your word, uh, help us to see clearly uh, what it's teaching, and uh, please grant to us uh, the grace to apply. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, what is our world's biggest problem? Pretty big question to get you thinking about. What is our world's biggest problem? Okay, what is it that makes you uh, most nervous about the future? What are the big issues that your children or grandchildren may be faced with even after you have departed? 
you know, how should the Christian's answer to these questions differ to the unsaved? You know, varying surveys have been undertaken asking this uh, very question, what is our world's biggest problem? And uh, climate change ranked very highly. Uh, it was the biggest concern in many surveys that I saw, particularly with younger people. Now, other massive problems included poverty, health in developing nations, wars, especially nuclear, uh, lack of clean water, running out of resources, pandemics. And uh, these are some of the biggest concerns that people have. Now, a lot of the above mentioned issues are worthy of attention, but they are not man's greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not external, it's internal. Okay, the greatest problem of man is our wicked heart. Okay, this is the biggest problem and the root cause of all other problems. Okay, this is the biggest threat facing children and your grandchildren. It's what is inside them. Okay, this is the great universal problem, the heart of man. As Jeremiah eloquently stated, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And tonight, I want to use this text to help us develop a biblical understanding of man, okay, at least one aspect of that, okay, and unpack our biggest issue and consider some of the varying practical applications and implications. So with that direction in mind, let's begin our journey through the text. Have you ever found yourself asking the question, I can't understand how or why somebody could do that? Perhaps you're reading through the paper and it's a horrible crime and you think to yourself, you know, how, how can someone do that? You know, I, I can't comprehend how somebody would even be capable of doing such a thing. Or to make it more personal, have you ever thought about yourself? I, I can't believe I did that. Okay, how, how could I do such a thing? Or have you ever thought, I just don't get why my loved ones don't respond to the gospel. Okay, I've shared it faithfully. I've endeavored to live a, a good life, a good example in front of them. And yet they don't want anything to do with it. It doesn't make sense. Why reject such good news? You know, I have a, a very close family member who struggles with this question. Okay, he can't understand why his brother hasn't accepted the gospel and his brother's incredibly hard toward it. And he's very concerned about his brother's state. But in his mind, he can't comprehend how they can be brought up in the same home, have the same upbringing, the same opportunities. They both heard the gospel, but their responses are very different. Uh, his solution to this riddle is that God hasn't chosen his brother, but has chosen him. So you can understand his theological persuasion, okay, which, of course, we wouldn't agree with. Okay, but th this is the question that he's wrestling with in his mind. And perhaps you have had such questions flood your minds. Okay, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody reject God? Why reject the gospel? It is such questions that form the backdrop for verse 9. It's vital that we consider the contextual framework because this verse doesn't exist in isolation. And having a basic grasp of the arguments, the flow, and the structure will help us to interpret the word correctly. So Jeremiah begins this chapter with an indictment of Judah and a warning of destruction. Okay, yet another warning. Now he says that the sins of Judah are engraved 
on their heart. So they are entrenched in sin. Okay, a pen of iron, which is mentioned in verse 1, was used to cut inscriptions in rock. Okay, so it's like an engraving tool today. So their sin, their rebellion was deeply embedded. The particular sin that engrossed them was idolatry. And we've seen that a lot through our study already. And uh, that point is made again uh, in verses 2 and 3. It establishes the guilt of the people. They had been unfaithful. They chased after other gods. And as a result, judgment was going to be unleashed. Now, verses 5 and 6 reveal the root problem of their idolatry and sin in general. That being trusting man rather than trusting God. Okay, they depended on the flesh, on their own abilities, their own methods. They did not believe they needed divine help. Nor did they think they had to do things God's way. Okay, they were self-sufficient and self-reliant. And the one who trusts in man... In verse 6, is compared to a shrub in the desert. Now, I read from one writer that, that in the Hebrew, the name of this tree is, and again, sorry if I butcher this, um, Ara, which sounds similar to the word for cursed. And he says this is part of a word play which is central uh, to this poem. Okay, so the cursed tree is one that is not drawing water. Okay, so it's dry, it's weak, it's about to shrivel up and die. And that is the image describing the one trusting in man. But then on the other hand, an alternative is described. This is the one who trusts in God. Okay, this is verse 7 and 8. Okay, he is like a tree planted near waters. So his roots will go down deep, drawing in the water, and hence is a healthy tree. And even in drought, continues to produce fruit and thrive. And it's interesting that this is actually very similar to Psalm 1. Okay, and perhaps the prophet had this in mind. And now it seems to be that Jeremiah was familiar with this psalm. This isn't the first time that he seems to have referenced it. Perhaps he had a copy of the psalm or at least had one available. Okay, but his points in presenting these two alternatives, he graphically illustrates the different outcomes of trusting God and trusting in men. And it leads to a question. If trusting in man, okay, trusting in self, leads to such misery, verse 6 says they shall see no good, but trusting in God results in blessing, it results in fruitfulness, you will prosper. What, why in the world would you then trust in self? Why, why would you chase sin? Why would you chase idolatry and not God? Okay, well, why did they trust in idols and forsake the Lord? Why were they acting in such a self-destructive manner? Verse 9 answers that question. It's because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay, so this verse in context is explaining why Judah rejected the Lord. Why they left the blessed path. Okay, it made no sense. It was illogical it was inconceivable how can it be explained well when one has a biblical understanding of the heart of man this helps to solve the puzzle and explain why men and women do what we do now when the bible speaks about the heart usually it's not speaking of the organ that pumps blood throughout 
our bodies, but rather it's talking of the inner man. Okay? It's the control center, the computer that governs us, if you like. It's the core of our inner life. It's where our thoughts, attitudes, motivations, intentions, and actions stem from. It's our whole inner person. So I want to share with you a number of scriptures just to back up that definition which I've just given. Okay, so Psalm, sorry, Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So here the heart is viewed as what we would probably today call the mind. Okay, it's, it's our thinking center and our thoughts reveal what we are like. Proverbs 23 verse 17 says, let not thine heart envy sinners. So this teaches us that sinful emotions and responses such as envy come from the heart. Deuteronomy 6 5, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. So here it's the source of positive emotions and responses. Psalm 9 verse 1, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. Here this refers to the psalmist's inner life. Everything that I am, I will use that to praise the Lord. Genesis 6 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So all the wickedness of mankind, whether it be thought or deed, originated in the heart. Now, 1 Samuel 24, 5, and it came to pass afterwards that David's heart smote him because he'd cut off Saul's skirt. So here the heart and the conscience are linked. Now, Proverbs 4, 24, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. So life's activity, life's actions come from the heart and hence we're called to guard it, protect it because it affects every area of life. Matthew 12, 34, this is Jesus speaking, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So what we say reveals what's going on in our hearts. And then Proverbs, not Proverbs, Romans, Romans 10, 9, uh, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart. Okay, so one is saved from belief in the heart. And the Bible also warns to avoid a double heart, Psalm 12, 2, a hard heart, Proverbs 28, 14, a proud heart, Proverbs 21, 4, an unbelieving heart, Hebrews 3, 12, and an unclean heart, Psalm 51, 10. Okay, so hopefully that's starting to paint a picture in your mind of what Jeremiah intends when he's speaking of the heart. It's the core of who we are. It's the control center. Our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our motivations, they all find their source in our hearts. Both who we are and what we do is linked inseparably to the heart. So understanding what the heart is, I want you to notice how the heart is described. There's a threefold description. We're told firstly it is deceitful. So the heart is full of deceit. It's a liar, cheat, schemer, a fraud stuff. The Hebrew word is translated crooked and polluted elsewhere. So man's inner being, who he is, is riddled with deceit, both deceit of others and self-deception. And the heart is so deceitful that the majority of mankind don't believe that it is 
deceitful. That's how effective man's heart is at deception. Now, the root Hebrew word that's translated deceitful is actually used of Jacob's deceiving of Esau. Perhaps you remember the story. Jacob was known as the supplanter, and he deceived his brother into handing over the birthright, and then he deceived his father into giving him a blessing. And this describes mankind's heart, full of deceit, dripping with hypocrisy, pretending to be something that it's not, ever ready to cheat or manipulate, an expert liar. That is what the heart is by nature. It's interesting, I haven't had to teach my kids how to lie or be deceitful. It all comes naturally. And the greatest deceit of the human heart is when it convinces the individual that the gospel is not true and that the gospel is not necessary. That's the ultimate self-deception. But our hearts do this in hundreds of other ways. Every temptation, every sin is rooted in deceit. And our hearts, despite being in us, cannot be fully trusted. And hence the advice, listen to your heart, that's, that's very terrible advice, okay, because our heart is riddled with deceit. The second thing we learn is that our hearts are desperately wicked. Okay, so it doesn't get any better. Uh, the heart is foul, it's gross, it's polluted, it's corrupted. Our hearts have a great capacity to do extreme wickedness. Okay, so picture a, a beautiful waterhole. It's crystal clear. It looks stunning. You can't wait to, to dive in it. You can see the bottom. But then someone you know, pours heaps of crude oil into the waterhole. Okay, it's wrecked. It, it destroys it. You get that image in your mind. That's what the heart is like. You know, it, it's rotten. And it has the potential to do all kinds of wicked things. Okay, great wickedness is lurking in our hearts, just like a thief in the shadows. Do you remember what Jesus said? Okay, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, he said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and defile the heart. Okay, all this resides in the heart, that that's the source of all wickedness. The third thing we learn is that the heart is unfathomable. Verse 9 finishes, who can know it? So man's heart is so corrupt, so twisted, it's so distorted, that we are unable to fathom its nature and corruptness. We don't comprehend how bad the heart actually is. We don't know our own hearts, let alone comprehend them. Okay, so, so advanced is the deceit and wickedness that we cannot ascertain an accurate assessment of our own hearts, let alone someone else's. So put, putting this all together, it's, it's not a, a very nice picture. Okay, man's heart is rotten. Okay, it's like that piece of fruit. You, you cut it open and it's decaying, it's gross, it can't be eaten, the grubs have attacked it, it's stinky and squishy and disgusting. That's the state of man's heart. So in theology, this is referred to as the depravity of man. And this means that we are completely corrupted and polluted by sin. Sin is not only something that we do, but it's something that we are. Okay, We are sinners. Okay, and sin has polluted every part of us. 
like if there's a fire in the room, the smoke permeates absolutely everything in that room. And that's what sin has done to us. There is no part of man that is untainted by sin. And we are born that way. And what this means is that man is not good. Okay, this is what most people believe today, that man is intrinsically good. But the Bible says something very different. Okay, we're not good. We're, we're bad. We're riddled with wickedness. Okay, sin is like a vicious cancer that has attacked every part of us. Man is depraved. Now, it's important that we understand depravity, what it is and what it isn't. Okay, one theologian says this. Okay, that man is totally depraved does not mean that every man is as thoroughly corrupt as he can become, nor that he has no conscience or innate ability to distinguish between good or evil, nor that unregenerate man can have no admirable virtues or character such as kindness, nor that man is unable to see and appreciate virtue in others, nor that every man indulges in every form of sinfulness. It does mean that every person is born depraved, that depravity extends to every part of man, that unregenerate man has no spiritual good which would commend him to God. Okay, so man is corrupt to the core. There's potential to do all kinds of wickedness. Now, often the right circumstances are just needed before we do it. Okay, it doesn't mean that everyone is as wicked as it can be, nor does it mean that one can't do good things nor does everyone indulge in every possible sin. But it does mean that man is not good. Okay, man is not even good most of the time. Man is corrupt, man is polluted, man is incredibly wicked and has the potential to do all kinds of horrible things. Okay, sin has invaded every component of man. The whole person is polluted. That is what depravity means. Okay, depravity doesn't mean okay, total inability. Okay, if you know anything about Calvinism, it's important to understand that's not what depravity speaks of. Okay? It doesn't mean that, that we are totally unable to respond to the gospel. Repentance doesn't have to happen before okay, we can come to Christ. Okay? Saving faith is not okay, the gift, as a Calvinist would claim. Now, Romans chapter 3, okay, this offers a, a very helpful, maybe helpful is not the right word, okay? it's a very vivid description of our depravity. It says this, as it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Okay, try and picture this imagery. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, and then a few verses later it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay, so this describes everyone. And it's not a very nice description, is it? But that's the condition of the heart. Man is not good by nature. Okay, and it's vital for our understanding of humanity okay, that we rid ourselves of this thinking. Okay, man is not good. Ever since the fall we have been born depraved okay we have this hideous disease within us man is wicked that's very clear from jeremiah 17 9 now perhaps right now there's, there's a question in your mind 
is this true for Christians? Okay, does this describe the believer's heart or just the unsaved? So do, do we as Christians still have deceit and wickedness in our hearts? Or has the new birth, has regeneration eradicated the wicked and deceitful heart? The new covenant, okay, which we'll get to, uh, Jeremiah 31, I believe it is, it actually speaks of a new heart. Okay, this is one of the blessings. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Okay, so that's one thing to keep in the back of our mind. Christians are new creatures. Okay, so there has been a change of some kind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then Acts 15, 9 says, And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So this mentions a heart being purified. So what light does this shed? Okay, well, it's true that all hearts are deceitful, and desperately wicked. This, this is a universal reality. Okay, but for Christians, that there is a new creation. There is spiritual life in us, which wasn't there previously. Our sins have been forgiven. The Holy Spirit is now within us. But there is still a deceitful and desperately wicked remnant. Okay, it hasn't been completely eradicated. There is still a struggle Within Paul speaks of this in his letters of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Okay, so even with a new heart, there's still a war raging within us. Okay, the flesh or indwelling sin or the remnants of sin, whatever terminology you want to use, is still in us. And hence, wickedness and deception is still a reality. Okay, there has been a change for us. Okay, we do have the Holy Spirit within, and yet Jeremiah 17, 9 is still true for believers. It will not be completely eradicated until we're glorified. Okay, so there's still deceit and there's still wickedness lurking in us. So how does this impact our lives? Okay, what are the practical implications and applications of mankind not being intrinsically good? but intrinsically wicked. Okay, how does an understanding that our heart is our greatest problem affect our lives? Okay, well, number one, sin is always our fault. You know, we live in a time where people don't like to take personal responsibility. Okay, it must be someone else's fault. There must be an explanation that doesn't indict me. And, uh, and this is advocated by the world of psychology. Now, I'm not making a statement trashing it completely, but one of the key presuppositions is finding something to blame okay, in order to explain one's behavior. Okay? It must be one's upbringing. It must be some event. It must be neglect. It must be some lack of opportunity. Okay? That there's always something or someone that's to be blamed for the bad behavior, but it's not the individual. Now, sure, that these mentioned elements are not irrelevant. Okay? They are part of the complex puzzle that is humanity. But when somebody sins... It's their fault. We can't excuse sin. There's no excuse for sin. We can't blame somebody else because what is sin? Sin is a decision that we make. 
Okay, it's a decision that we make to rebel against God's law. Where does that come from? It's come from our hearts. So we need to be careful that we don't start making excuses for our sinful attitudes and actions, which we can. Have you done that? Okay, you blame it on others. You blame it on your circumstances. But the reality is okay, our wickedness finds its source in here. Okay, those things that we're seeking to blame merely reveal what's already lurking inside us. So we need to stop blame shifting. And perhaps this is happening in your marriage. You blame your spouse for your outburst of anger and harsh remarks. You know, if only they were different, if only they, they, they did this like I asked, then I wouldn't respond like that. Well, my friend, the Bible says that that sin is your fault. Okay, how you respond is your responsibility. Maybe someone gives you a hard time at work and you're rude and you're harsh back to them and you excuse yourself thinking, well, hey, that they started it. You know, I wouldn't have reacted that way if they didn't say what they said first. Again, you're trying to excuse yourself. And this is evidence of the deceitfulness that still resides within us. We, we want to pass the buck. We, we want to blame someone else and we're the masters of making excuses. You know, I did this because I, I was too tired. I, I was stressed. My, my, my children were naughty. And, and we have all of these excuses, but none of them are valid. Okay, don't allow your heart to deceive you. Your sin is always your fault, and so is mine. Number two, we need to deal with the inside, not just the outside. Okay, in order to overcome sin, since the source is our hearts, Okay, it is this that needs to be changed in order to defeat and overcome sin. You know, often we can be content with what we could call behavioral modification, but the heart issues are not addressed. Okay, when, when we sin, there are always underlying issues. There are always false beliefs in our hearts. Okay, and that needs to be drilled down into and treated. Okay, if somebody is always angry, that's an outward manifestation but there are some heart issues that need to be addressed. There will likely be some false beliefs about God, some false beliefs about self that will be fueling this particular anger. There's likely a, a huge dose of selfishness that needs to be dealt with. And in such a situation, one may employ anger management strategies so there's, there's no outburst, and th that may have a place, but it doesn't get at the deeper issue, the real issue, which is inside, okay? That's ignoring the heart of the matter, and hence it will not lead to lasting change. Okay, true spiritual change comes about as the Word of God, the Gospel of God through the Spirit of God corrects our false beliefs, recalibrates our desires, changes our way of thinking, overcomes deep pride and selfishness issues. It requires a work of the heart. Now, when I was building... I've come across white ants uh, numerous times, stripped off wall sheets, and there's a heap of white ants there. It's not a very nice thing to discover. And, you know, at that time, I could have killed all the white ants that I could see uh, with my hammer. Okay, that's dealing with the external elements. But that wouldn't change anything. Okay, to deal with white ants, you need to get poison back to the nest. That's the way to eradicate the problem, get to the source. This is what we need to do with sin. Whether that's sin in our personal lives or if we're trying to help someone else. It's not just the external behavior that needs treating. There are heart issues that need to be addressed. Number three, 
Okay, this needs to shape our parenting. Now, I'm very much at the early stages of parenting. I have not got it figured out. Definitely don't. But this verse has some things to teach me. Okay, how, how my theology needs to shape how I parent my children. Okay, first of all, it tells me that my, my kids are sinners and they're born that way. Okay, children's hearts are, are deceitful and wicked and our children are not perfect angels. Okay, it's vital that we grasp that. Okay, but furthermore, I need to be dealing with my children's heart, not just their external behavior. The heart requires attention. What are the underlying sinful attitudes lurking within that's producing the outward behavior that I'm not happy about? It's very easy to deal with the external but neglect the internal as a parent. We need to remember that our children's heart, what our children's hearts are like and we need to be parenting the heart, not just the external behavior. Number four, God knows our hearts. You and I don't fully grasp or comprehend the state or the condition of our hearts. But verse 10, Jeremiah 17 tells us that God sees that. God sees the heart. God knows the heart. And if you think about that, that that's a terrifying reality. God knows our hearts perfectly. Everything that has ever gone on, God knows about it. But here's the amazing thing. God knew everything about us. Okay, he knows how wicked we are. He sees our depravity clearly. He sees our rottenness. He sees the corruption. He sees the pollution. And yet he still sent his son to die for us. Isn't that amazing? But doesn't that magnify the grace of God as the hymn says that he would save a wretch like me? Because if you and I, if we knew the absolute worst about each other, we'd probably be disgusted with each other. We probably wouldn't want to talk to each other. But God knows us perfectly, and yet he still saved us. That, that's the greatness of our God. And the fifth and final thing is that Jesus had a perfect heart. Okay, Jesus became man, fully God, fully man. And due to the virgin birth, okay, this is why the virgin birth is so important, because of that, he did not inherit a sin nature. Okay, that's why it matters. That's why we must defend it. And this means that he didn't have a deceitful and wicked heart. Okay, he was free from sin. He knew no sin. And he went to the cross and he died for us. Okay, he died for our corrupt and sin-sick hearts. He took it all upon himself despite having a perfectly pure heart. And he did that to save us so that we can be forgiven and one day have a perfectly pure heart. But until then, until that day, the work of sanctification is conforming our hearts to be more and more like Jesus' hearts. And we do this by knowing him or by beholding his glory. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, and may we be beholding the glory of Jesus. May we be considering him in the Bible. May we know him more and more and become more and more like him. May our hearts 
day, each and every day, making slow progress, but may they be slowly becoming more and more like Jesus' heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of Scripture. Thank you particularly for this this verse and uh, for how deep it is uh, theologically, for how how important it is and what it has to teach us about ourselves and for the many practical uh, implications contained within it as well. Lord, please help us to uh, understand uh, ourselves according to the Bible and please grant us the grace uh, to apply the message you had for us tonight. Please keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.